Automotive retailers are enjoying a terrific business climate right now, but they face an uncertain future. On this week's show, experts in auto retail talk about the shift away from passenger cars, the impact of Trump's import tariffs, and what it will take to sell electric vehicles. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week, because today we're going to get down in the trenches of retail operations. And joining me for today's show are Brian Finkelmeyer, the Senior Director of Conquest at V-Auto. Chase Shadak is the Retail Operations Manager for Suburban Imports. And Steve Finley is with Ward's Auto. He's joining me as part of the journalist panel on today's show. And welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks. Thank you. Brian, why don't I start with you? Uh, we're seeing so much happening on the retail front right now that most dealerships are facing what they call margin compression. They just don't have the profit margins that they did. What's driving that, and how do they climb out of this hole? Yeah, it's a great question, uh, John. You know, I think it's a, it's a number of things. I think first and foremost that comes to mind is just the Internet has really been a game changer on the auto industry, much like it has for every industry. And so with that, uh, consumers have become a lot more intelligent in the terms of going out and buying cars with so much uh, information resources. So they've become much more informed buyers. And then I think also the manufacturers, every one of them is trying to grow their share. And there's uh, programs out there driving dealers to reach higher and higher sales levels. And that's certainly contributed. And then I think one of the third issues, quite frankly, is uh, it started to come down, but just overall inventory volumes have been up over 4 million cars across the industry on the new car side of the business. So that all those factors, I think, have certainly contributed to margin compression. And you know, when we look at the NADA data, uh, this past year was the first time that we saw even on the used car side of the business that profit margins had gone negative. Uh, for the very first time. So it's it started on the new car side. Now we're beginning to see uh, really tightening compressions on the used car side as well. Jay, as I mentioned, you're uh, the retail operations manager for Suburban Imports. Did, quick thumbnail, what all different brands and how many stores do you have? I have uh, five stores that I oversee. Uh, I have Porsche, Volkswagen, Audi, Mazda, and Nissan. Um, and to just jump right in here, what we're talking about with margin compression, it's, it's a real thing. It's been a real thing for a long time. It's obviously a big concern at, at our level, um, especially when you're gross-driven, you know, and being in the business for as long as we've been in it, you're driven, you're driven by, by gross. So it's, it's a little bit of a change. So what so, kind of things can you do or can you to offset that? Uh, you have to chase the volume, that's for sure. Um, the manufacturers really, they really do hold your feet to the fire with different programs, different levels you can hit. Um, and used now, too. We're starting to see more on the uh, certified side. So, well, we should point out, though, that uh, margin is not the only revenue source for dealers. It's right. also yeah. uh, bonuses from the manufacturers, and those have become significant uh, in recent years to the point that d dealers depend on that more than they do on some of the margins. Now, what, that's a double-edged sword, isn't it? it is. Talk about that, if you guys would. It is. Uh, if you don't mind, Brian, I'll jump right in here. I mean, you're, it's really simple. You're either in or you're out. You're either going to do a high volume and get that, that number from the manufacturer, or you're not. You're going to do low volume and high gross. It's really that simple. 
So, like Brian, said. explain us a little bit how these trigger points work. Yeah, so oftentimes manufacturers will set a program. They'll call you up, John, at the beginning of the month and say, hey, if you hit, sell 100 cars, we'll pay you $50,000. And if you sell 99, we won't send you a dime. <laughs> um, and so that type of uh, you know, program is really driving dealers to stretch for higher and higher sales volumes. And what we've seen that's really interesting, from 2014 to 2017, um, that, that manufacturer money has gone from 52% of the front-end gross to 75% of the front-end gross last year. So dealers... So you're, what you're saying is dealers make 75% of their gross revenue from, the from these programs. Yeah, so increasingly, I almost think of car dealers as becoming almost employees of the auto manufacturer more than making their money from selling cars to customers. I, we say it's the most expensive loss leader uh, in the industry <laughs> is the sale of a new car. Well, <laughs> nobody's ever given somebody money without expense expecting something in return, right? I mean, that's just an accident. Yeah, life. no question. And I think, to Chase's point, I think many uh, dealers would say, you know, we did a recent uh, survey of some car dealers, and half the room said that they actually love the program. So I think it's it's sort of the haves and have-nots, the dealers that are aggressive and go after to making a fair amount of money, and they appreciate those programs. But, Jay, i got to believe that these kind of programs have changed the business. Absolutely, yeah. And I think really what they want to change, especially from the consumer standpoint, is the overall transparency. And that's why that margin compression is happening, and it has happened. It, which gets back to what Brian kicked off by saying, with the Internet, now there's yeah. a whole lot more transparency than there ever was. Absolutely, yeah. Well, one of the things Brian's, uh, Brian's company does is uh, offer a deal, uh, dealership uh, inventory management software, which tells a dealer what car is hot. You know, you're, you're getting data, crunch data on demand, on pricing, on a lot of things for particular markets. And we've talked about this before. The key is the right car at the right price. That's what drives a sale. Absolutely. So what about yeah. that? Yeah, 100% you're on the money in tech. Um, the two biggest drivers of consumer dealership selection is did they have the right car and was the car priced correctly online? And, you know, what we say is in, across the industry they're saying about the average customer is only visiting about 1.2 to 1.5 dealerships. So increasingly that decision about where I'm going to buy a car has been determined on the Internet, and I'm just going to the dealership to take delivery more than I think in the past they were going to find information, to take test drives. There was more of a drawn-up process. Maybe, Che, you can speak more to that. I would say that's 100% accurate with used cars. I, not so much on new cars that, that I see on the front line every day, anyways. Um, people do shop a little bit more on new cars. Well, sure. the, I think what, it's a little bit more than 1.3 on new cars, but used cars for sure. I mean, what is your job or what is the salesperson's job when they do come to the uh, dealership after doing all that research online? Pretty much landing on the car, the financing is, you know, at least lined up. What is a salesperson's new role? Is it still to sell the car or is it to confirm a decision that the customer has made through all that digital research? Or just do the paperwork. <laughs> or, just do the, or just deliver the car. Yeah, That would be nice if it was that easy just to do the paperwork. Right? <laughs> we would love that. But uh, no, it's still working the steps of the sale. Still working the sales process. Um, you know, acknowledging the customer, clarifying what their needs are, um, feature advantage benefits, all that stuff. None of that has changed, really. Um, from what we see. So a customer could come in on a certain model and they'll go home in a different model because they didn't understand what they, you know, what they researched online. And then they end up liking a different model more. So, Which can be great, if, if the, and that's happened to me. I, uh, we went in for this car and ended up with that car, and I'm glad we did. Uh, the salesperson directed us in that fashion. But 
the negative of that is taking somebody away from a car they've landed on they really like, and that's Absolutely, motivated yeah. by somebody thinking c bigger commission because it's a you know, bigger car or bigger vehicle or more expensive vehicle. That's one of the risks of the business. So how do you guard against that? Customer engagement. Really keeping the customer overall engaged from start to finish. Because the internet is at their fingertips when they're in our showrooms. They have their mobile devices. They're, if you leave them alone for too long, they're shopping. <laughs> Why they're sitting in your dealership, they're shopping. So Confiscate their phones. Yeah. Brian, I, I want to come back to the right car at the right price. And I, the reason I ask that is we're seeing a massive shift in the market right now. Sales of passenger sedans are absolutely cratering, cratering. In fact, you know, if, if you look at it on average, sales of cars, not crossovers, pickups, or uh, SUVs, but passenger cars are going down to the tune of fifty to 60000 every single month. So how do you work your magic to make sure that you're putting the right car at the right price at the right place? Yeah, I mean, the, as you say, I mean, this shift is something like we've never seen before. It's just such a dramatic shift. I think last month they said roughly only a third of the new vehicles sold in the United States were passenger cars. And so it's really created some challenges for particular brands that don't have a lot of trucks and SUVs. So they have to be very precise in understanding that they're only stocking the fast-turning combinations and pricing those appropriately because— you know, I really do believe that the customers aren't spending a lot of time with someone that's not being transparent online. And then I think on the flip side, it's so important on the truck and SUV side, there is a little bright light there that the margins do tend to be a little higher on the Ford F-150s and the Silverados and uh, the Toyota Highlander, the Pilot, uh, the Honda Pilot, our vehicles that all have reasonable on a relative basis, much higher gross than selling a, a sedan. And so I think it's critically important, you know, for new car dealers to understand as well that they're optimizing the hand that they're dealt from the factory in terms of trying their very best to get the right inventory so that they can turn their vehicles faster. Uh, the factories tend to reward on a turn and earn basis. So if I want to accelerate the amount of money I make and I do that by selling my inventory faster than the other dealers in the market. Right. Trey, how do you handle that? I mean, because all these car companies have factories that they've paid a billion dollars to build, and they're making passenger cars. That's what they're tooled up for. So they got to be dumping these things on you or trying to. We How have, do you deal with that? Yeah, we have some control of that with our allocations. Um, but to Brian's point, I mean, you really have to manage it well and know your market day supply, know many other vehicles you have in stock, and be able to turn them quicker. Because if you turn them quicker, then you do. You, you're, you're rewarded by turning them quicker so you can make more money. So I think an interesting phenomenon that's going on with this you know, wave of off-lease vehicles, it's going to be about $3.9 million this year. A lot of those... Are CUVs, SUVs, pickups, which weren't in the uh, mix a few years ago, was heavy on cars. So now somebody who's in the market is looking at, you know what, I can get that CUV with, uh, you know, all the connectivity and uh, the Bluetooth and and everything else versus um, a, a car, a new car that's about the same price. I can get the CUV I want versus the new car I don't want. And a lot of them are opting for the used CUV, and that presents some pressure on the automakers because uh, it's not just, it used to be the people that didn't have the money went used. Now the statistics indicate that a lot of used shoppers are people with wherewithal and they're just looking for a decent value deal. I, I see you guys nodding your head. Do no, you yeah. agree with that? 
Yeah, I was going to say the only thing that the car companies hate worse than high incentives is turning off the factory. <laughs> and so, I, you know, we saw in the industry, I think now for the first time we've seen incentives as a percentage of MSRP be over north of 10%, which is usually sort of the danger zone. So I think there's a lot of question in the in the market right now, to your point, Steve, is, is there's so many attractive used vehicles coming off lot that provide a, a you know, rational a choice for consumers when they're looking at their monthly payment and their budget, um, that maybe it makes more sense to get the three-year-old three series than the brand new Honda Accord, for example. So there's a lot of tension in the industry right now between that new car incentive uh, up against the very attractive uh, used vehicles. Oh, yeah. Which can come with, uh, if they're CPO vehicles, they come with warranties. So, like, you know, how do you lose, really? Even more value for the customer. <laughs> there you go. And you yeah, see that happening, Jay, at your stores, that uh, people are coming in and buying more used crossovers and SUVs and the like? Yeah, uh, interesting point. Again, I think Brian touched on a little bit was um, the the CPO inventory that we have. The higher it is, and the more we advertise, and the better job we do there, the more new cars we sell. Why is that? Because they're being driven into the dealerships to look at the pre-owned vehicles, right? But maybe it didn't. They didn't like it. Something didn't work out. And then we have the opportunity to flip them into a new lease, or maybe they have zero percent, something a little bit more attractive, and they can get a brand new car. So then it opens them back up. So. Very interesting. Yep. I never knew that. So. Used cars could actually help you sell more new ones. It has. Very yeah. interesting. Another thing that we see coming in the industry is more hybrids, more plug-in hybrids, more electric cars. And these are coming because of government mandate. I suppose at some point down the road there will be a lot of consumer demand for them, but right now that demand is tiny, very tiny. And yet in another three years or so, we're going to see about 120 battery electric models hitting the showrooms. How do you deal with that, Brian, or can you? Well, I think it poses a lot of interesting challenges for the car dealers, one of which is is that oftentimes these car companies are asking their dealers to invest in charging stations and make yeah. big capital investments in terms of upgrading their facilities. There's new tooling requirements in the service department to, to fix these vehicles. And then one of the challenges, quite frankly, is that these vehicles have less parts. So there's less things to go wrong. And I think what we've seen uh, just from people that I've spoken to that are dealing with this is that these electric vehicles just have less uh, customer pay work, which is a high margin opportunity for car dealers to make money. So it really- sure, they don't need oil changes or tune-ups or anything like that. Exactly, and they come to the dealerships less frequently and they spend less money when they're there. And so I think that poses a real challenge for car dealers looking out into the future is when you're saying, boy, my variable front-end side of the operation is already under extreme margin compression. And as you say, if 120 new electric uh, hybrids are coming in the next few years, that's going to begin to put pressure on my fixed operation, which is really keeping a lot of dealers afloat today. Hmm. Uh, there was a study out that I did a story on of, um, that said that one of the reasons EV sales haven't really caught on as much as people expected they would is because dealership salespeople, when somebody comes in expressing an interest in uh, an EV, whether it's a remote interest or a hot interest, they kind of steer them towards the gasoline-powered vehicle. Uh, so we posted the story, and I got a, kind of an angry call from the National Automobile <laughs> Dealers Association saying, that's just not true. You know, dealers do a great job in selling EVs. Do they? We don't have any to sell. <laughs> we do have a lot of the charging stations, but we don't, we don't carry a lot of them, especially in this area. It's, there's not a lot because of... Because there's not demand or... Not a lot of demand for it, no. Okay. Um, with Nissan... 
you know, we did we did sell a few of those, and they were the first ones that, for us anyways, the, all the franchises that I've worked for and under that had charging stations that had, you know, sort of taken some direction that way. But even those coming off lease, they put a lot of executives in them. There was a good opportunity for, for us to buy them, like when they, when they were done with them, for pretty cheap, too. So, I mean, you're talking five, six grand we could buy them for. I think one the of the end, challenges so, on that whole EV thing, right. and it's going to improve as battery costs continue to come down, but I've read studies that say that the average consumer is willing to pay a little bit extra up front, whether that be for a hybrid or an electric car, but they want the payback on that investment to be about two years or less. And what the math has been over the last, let's call it five years, the math has not returned that uh, ROI at the gas pump in two years or less. And so it's almost a rational decision for many customers. If you were doing this for pure economics, it doesn't make sense. So I think from my experience, a lot of the early adopters on AV, it's been more about environmentalism or their technology yeah. leaning more than an economic decision. Well, and Shea indicated the resale value or the, the residual value, I should say, is just horrible on those vehicles. And there's not anything wrong with the vehicle. I think it has more to do with public perception of like, okay, as you use a vehicle, how long is this going to last before I have to replace a $10,000 battery or something like that? Right. Studies have indicated, JD's power has indicated, those things actually wear pretty well uh, in, you know, as they approach their elder years. But um, boy, the customer perception is that they don't, and that's really affected resale value on EVs. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a little bit like an Apple iPhone 3. I mean, was, what is that worth today? Because the technology keeps improving, and so that's, I think, one thing that the car companies hadn't fully grappled with is that as their technology keeps improving, it's actually diminishing the value of those earlier versions they built. Well, that's why I tell people, don't buy an electric car, lease it, because in three years, it's going to be obsolete, and I hate to tell that to, to retailers, but hey, uh, switching topics, ever so slightly, uh, Che, I want to come back to you. You work for a dealership called Suburban Imports. Uh, the Trump administration is talking about putting tariffs maybe as high as 20 or 25 percent on all imported vehicles. How would you deal with something like that? Because I figure uh, that would add somewhere between $7,000 and $8,000 to the cost of an average car. Yeah, I think on the front lines, it's going to be more with the manufacturers dealing with it more than us at first, I would believe. Um, we haven't seen any impact from it yet, just the talk of it. Um, I think it's just kind of a business move, you know, um, really is what it is. Um, but people, if they want those cars bad enough and they're still coming here, they're still going to buy them. That's... Well, you, I, I, you haven't seen the effect so. because the prices haven't gone up. No, we haven't. Yeah, if exactly. they do, you might see the effect. And that's why right. uh, the, Amer what is it, the American International Auto Dealers Association, that you know, represent uh, foreign brands or whatever, um, they are so opposed to those tariffs. I mean, they, they put out stuff every day saying how horrible it's going to be for um, those dealers that sell imports. Yeah, and we have all of them, you know, where I work, so... <laughs> Brian, anything so, to add to that? Well, I just think the ramifications that are even bigger than just the car dealer, but the supplier network, and there's a lot of different aspects market, of the huh? car industry that could certainly be impacted by that. Yeah, no, I, I think it really would. Uh, another thing, going back to the idea of margin compression, I know a topic that you've talked about in the past, uh, Brian, is how much money car dealers spend on advertising and that there might be opportunities to take cost out on that side. Yeah, you know, one of the big things we talk about is just the need for dealers to, to 
be more efficient in their operations. And I see that advertising to be one big area of opportunity in that uh, as margins and the amount of money they make on a per car basis continues to go down, their expense of acquiring customers continues to go up. In fact, last year, I think most people would be shocked to learn that the average dealer would spend about $650 a customer mm -hmm. to bring in a new customer. And then if you think about it, half your customers tend to come from your service drive anyway. So your true cost of acquisition is probably closer to twelve dollars or $1,300. And with, you know, with once again, going back to the internet and the ability to be very surgical and target specific customers uh, who are looking for certain things, I think there's a big area, um, big opportunity for dealers to be much more efficient in how they're spending those dollars. Yeah, I agree with that, 100%. What, are you putting more of your money on in the digital world instead of print and broadcast? We do, yeah, 80% is digital. Really? Yeah. Is we that typical, do. do you think, for dealers, Brian? Well, that's on the high side. I think um, as of a couple of years ago, it was about a third of dealer budgets were on digital, and this year it's creeping closer to 50%, so there's definitely a migration. I've seen a study that says over the next two to three years, uh, dealer spend and digital advertising is likely to rise by 45%. Mm. So if you want to look in for any investments, go find some digital ad agencies. <laughs> well, the strength yeah. in, in digital advertising is the personalization and the uh, exact targeting. You know, you're tracking where somebody is online and they're shopping, what they're looking at, uh, what they're visiting, and you start marketing to them. And the, the, the trick is to make it meaningful marketing, not just, you know, bye, bye, bye. Uh, but something that really pertains to what they've been doing online, and that is very powerful. And you know, one thing that's interesting, I often ask dealers, you know, what's the best um, mechanism right now towards attracting customers? And they say for the dollars they spend versus the customers they get that Facebook is extraordinarily impactful at driving customers, to your point, Steve, of being able to target specific consumers who are in certain zip codes and draw those people in. Shay, maybe do you do some social media type advertising with Suburban? Yeah, we do. Uh, we do a lot with Facebook. Um, you know, it, uh, it definitely drives. There's certain elements, too. You get the sales force involved with it and their Facebook, and then we have Facebook pages just for the dealerships individually. But if you have, um, for example, like if, a salesperson says, just throws out a random question, says, hey, what color do you think is better, red or blue? And it's just an open-ended question. You're not, trying to, you're not trying to sell anything. You're just asking for feedback. Which color, in your opinion, is, right? It's instant advertising for the dealership and for that salesperson individually. So it drives more traffic to our website. And what to else the store. do you do? Because, you know, so. if you get on Facebook, there's <laughs> zillions of posts getting posted every second. So how do yeah. you break out of the cl clutter? Obviously, doing little questions like this, but what other kind of tips can you give us? Um, display advertising. I don't know. That's, yeah. that's pretty inexpensive to do. Display ads, they can pop up. Um, to your point, you know, with SEO and SEM, if, if somebody attaches themselves to our website or clicks on it, it's going um, to keep them triggered, right? And they're going to stay attached, so it's going to pop back up. It's going to keep on throwing it up in their face. So if you want to spend a little bit more money, it's going to throw our dealership up in your face again. So um, there's, there's little tricks like that, but obviously just staying in front of the consumer. Well, one thing that has been talked about is dealers are among the most generous people in the world. And they can use Facebook not to brag necessarily, but to show the Little League team they support and the charity right. they support. I mean, you, you know, you can really um, 
highlight some of the stuff that you do for the community on Facebook and other social media. You have to share one of the neatest ideas I've heard of this, uh, being able to be hyper-targeted, uh, was the Waze app that helps people avoid traffic. And if you're sitting on the 285 Beltway, Waze will actually understand that you're in bumper-to-bumper traffic and flash you an ad for a 1995 oil change at the dealership <laughs> off the freeway. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. So what other things are, are dealers grappling with these days? What have we missed so far in this discussion? Well, you know, I think one of the big challenges is in many markets, specifically the metro markets, your Washington, D.C., San Francisco's, L.A.'s, whatnot, the cost of real estate has just become so expensive. And so dealers are having to put huge, huge capital investments into these uh, buildings and the land. And I think when you start looking out at the long term, when you start thinking about, well, what are the impact of autonomous vehicles? Or we talked about the electrification of vehicles and all these big issues where it's not real clear exactly at this time how that's all going to plan out. But these dealers are on a 20-year mortgage. So they're, they're, they're invested for the long haul. I was down in Orlando not too long ago and saw the biggest Lexus dealership I've ever seen in my life. I heard that this, this place cost over $75 million. And so that is an enormous amount of investment for an individual car dealer to make with sort of an sure uncertain future. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. uh, Mike Sullivan, who's a dealer in, um, based in Santa Monica, he was saying that the real estate in parts of L.A., it's $10 million an acre. So you buy four acres for your dealership, there's $40 million for the dirt. That doesn't include, you know, the building, it, mm-hmm. so it really becomes astronomical. But it also lends to the fact that do you need to have the inventory right there? Do you need the service department right there on Main Street where the, the, the rent is high? The service can be, you know, somewhere else, like an industrial park. So people are playing around with that idea based on the, what you were talking about, the real estate. When you costs. look um, at our dealerships, they're attached, kind of like a strip mall, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the manufacturers want us to get away from that. Completely. I mean, we're going to be forced to build a new Audi dealership. Have to. Has to be standalone. Mazda has to be standalone. Um, Nissan is standalone, but they really, you know, Porsche wants standalone. So these manufacturers, they don't they? yeah. <laughs> I mean, but they're forcing the big dealer groups to to actually do it. You know? But that's going to raise so, your costs. It does. Yeah. Because right now, I imagine you can keep a lot of backroom operations all consolidated with a nice strip of different dealerships out front. That's the idea, it's more centralized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, lower cost, but. As, as tough so. as the world is, it's only gonna get tougher. <laughs> Jay, we're down to the very end. Have you guys given much thought to how you might sell uh, autonomous cars? Well, I mean, we're ready for it, obviously. In this market, um, again, it's, it's a little bit tougher because people do their research, um, and there's not a lot of charging stations around. They really have to look to see where, how far can I drive, and people drive a lot here, you know? Yeah. So they're worried about that. That's a lot of the feedback that we get. So if they do come in on an electric vehicle, they change their mind because they're like, oh, they do the math of it, to Brian's point, and they figure out how far they can actually drive and go, oh, no, I can't do it. I'm scared to do that. Something's going to happen. I'm going to be stuck, so I'm going to buy a gas car. Well, autonomous vehicles <laughs> so, should make the test drive interesting anyway. It should. Yeah. Look, with that, I'm afraid we're <laughs> going to have to wrap this conversation up. But Brian Finkelmeyer from V Auto. Chase Shadak from Suburban Imports, Steve Finley from Wards Auto. Thanks. This has been a very interesting discussion. Thanks, John. Thank you.